You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our subject today is the life, times, and presidency of Benjamin Harrison. Our guests are Charles Hyde, who is a native Hoosier. He grew up here in Indianapolis. Since September 2014, he served as President Benjamin Harrison presidential site, CEO, and president. Under Charlie's leadership, the presidential site has experienced significant growth, which you can tell if you ever ride your bike right past it there. He has increased attendance by 25%. Our other guest is Dr. Dan Miller, founder and president of Historical Solutions, LLC. Since 2004, his company has specialized in using history to enrich and improve leadership. Dan earned his doctorate and master's in history at Indiana University Bloomington and a bachelor's in history from Anderson University. Dan and Charlie, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. So I'm going to be the de facto host for this podcast, but I'm actually not going to be the real host because I want the two of you to please ask each other questions talk about President Harrison, his life and times. My goal is to prompt you. Um, we claim Benjamin Harrison as our own, but he was not born here in Indiana. He was actually born in Ohio. He had a distinguished career, both in politics and in the Civil War. He was there for some amazing Civil War experiences. I want you all to please talk about that. And then maybe think towards the end of the podcast, uh, what did being a Hoosier mean to Benjamin Harrison? But please feel free to ask each other questions and prompt each other for fun stories and information. Charlie, I'll start with you. Tell us, the Leaders and Legends podcast audience, a little bit about Benjamin Harrison's youth and growing up. Well, if I can set the scene first, Robert, uh, and just kind of frame out like why, why we would even have a conversation about American president. And I know that um, your listeners are very um, keenly aware and interested in leadership. So they, they better have, they have a better appreciation of, of that significance to begin with. 
But if you think about since the founding of our nation, there have been nearly a half billion American citizens. So of those about, you know, just over 12,000 have actually served in Congress. 115 at this point have served on the Supreme Court, but only 45 of those individuals. So only 45 out of a half million citizens of this country have ever served as president of the United States. So, you know, right at the, right at the outset, there is something significant. There's something worth understanding about these American presidents, about these 45 individuals that their country um, felt like was the right person at the time um, to call into that leadership role. So it's, it's just, it sets the scene for, for why any president is worth talking about, and more specifically, why Benjamin Harrison, as 23rd president of the United States, the only president elected from Indiana, um, is worthy of deeper consideration. And he, he has a compelling personal story that I think is, helps set the scene as well. Um, you asked about that childhood. And um, so Benjamin Harrison did come from a prominent uh, political family. Um, his family did not have significant um, um, individual wealth. He himself um, said that the only thing he ever inherited was his name, but he had, he had a prominent political family. So his great grandfather was Benjamin Harrison V, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. His grandfather, William Henry Harrison, was ninth president of the United States. And so Benjamin Harrison was actually born in his grandfather, William Henry Harrison's home in North Bend, Ohio, right on the border between Ohio and Indiana um, in 1833. So Benjamin Harrison was only seven years old when his grandfather, William Henry Harrison, was elected to the presidency. And he was also still seven years old when his grandfather died a month into office. Um, without even having a chance for that family household to kind of follow and, and tow to Washington. So you, you can imagine how formative of an experience that would have been for a young Benjamin Harrison. Um, being familiar certainly with his grandfather, having been born in that house, being very acutely aware of that family legacy of civic service and to find himself you know, equally thrust into, into that situation. Did he, did he know, did he remember the inauguration at all or have any recollection of that time? He himself did not attend the, the inauguration. So the intention was for his wife, Anna Sims, so William Henry Harrison's wife, Anna Sims Harrison, to follow behind with the full household after the inauguration. And um, as your listeners may recall, it was William Henry Harrison that only served a month in office, um, having caught some ailment, probably as a result of his overlong inaugural remarks um, that were made in a drenching, chilling rain. So there, there's some dispute among historians as, as to the cause of William Henry Harrison's death, although at this point it looks almost certainly like um, bad water in Washington, D.C. Uh, contributed. Dan, what would you like to add to all that? Um, well, I won't even I won't even start with the phrase "bad water" in Washington D.C. because that's just got all kinds of connotations that echo down to 2021. But, but I did, let me just share a a little a, a kind of a weird coincidence from this morning. I met with a client of mine uh, who over coffee, and I'm not going to say the individual's name, but a, a big issue in my client's life is what I'll call multi-generationalism, uh, father, grandfather, and so forth. And we're going to be using Benjamin Harrison as our 
example of a person who dealt with multi-generationalism in his life and, you know, trying to strike that balance between honoring and loving and embracing and celebrating your heritage and your past, but at the same time, trying to some degree break away from it and start your own story and plant your own tree, if you will. And I, I think Harrison's a, a absolutely fabulous and, and as Charlie indicated, dramatic example of a person whose life is spent doing that. Did he feel like he had something to live up to, like the name? Absolutely, absolutely did. And as I told my client this morning in many ways, and Charlie, you said, uh, you said that great-grandfather is Benjamin Harrison V. Is that correct? Yes. So that means great-grandson is Benjamin Harrison VI. And so as I told my client, that Roman numeral six, that, that, that six weighs a ton. It weighs a ton. And I'm sure he wouldn't have traded it for the world, but yet at the same time, he realizes that it, it is a tremendous responsibility and, and oftentimes or occasionally burden as well. So I think, yeah, he, Robert, he's very much aware of that. It seems like reading a little bit about him, he received a very significant education for the time. Charlie, do you want to tell us a little bit about how Benjamin Harrison made his bones before we go into the, uh, his service in the American Civil War? Yeah, and and you know certainly to to Dan's point, you know Harrison said at one point he wanted he wanted it understood that he was the son of no man, so there there was that push and pull I think within Harrison's own mind of the obligation to his family's heritage, and really trying to strike out on his own, and you know I think that that also uh, influenced him in his educational choices, so. Um, it was interesting, his, his father, John Scott Harrison, who's known as the only man who is both the um, son and father of, of an American president, um, did not have significant um, means. He, he, he basically plowed all of his money into his farm and into the education of his children. So for Benjamin Harrison, um, being able to have an opportunity to, to pursue advanced studies, to go to Farmers College, and then later, um, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, uh, represented a significant investment of his family and of resources and of, um, of opportunity. So for Benjamin Harrison to be able to pursue those advanced studies, he was weighing out whether he wanted to, to be a, uh, a minister or if he wanted to be a lawyer. And I think he ultimately found his calling in law, recognizing that he could contribute um, in other ways to his faith. Um, but pursued, I think, that, that, that legal career with equal vigor as he, as he would have, I think, a, a more of a ministerial career. So, so for Benjamin Harrison in education, um, it opened so many doors for him um, for his, I would say, for his future, not just his career, but certainly as, as it came to bear within his political career. Um, he met his future wife, Caroline Harrison, during those years when he was studying in college. Uh, she was also college educated, which, you know, in, in that era for anyone to be college educated was rare, mm -hmm. uh, all the more um, exceptional for women. So for him to met his future wife in college, you can imagine how important education was certainly to him and, and to their family in later years and uh, making that investment themselves and, and their own children. Um, but for, for Harrison, I think it was, it was fundamental to, to everything that he pursued 
um, uh, with be, that educational. Being a Midwestern attorney, he's a little bit younger than Abraham Lincoln. I think about mm, quite a bit, maybe 24 years. Lincoln born 1809. Is that right? Right. 12, 1809. Right. Benjamin Harrison's born in 1833, but there were a lot of prominent Midwestern lawyers in the what's called the early national period leading up to the antebellum period before the start of the American Civil War in 1861. Did he have occasion, Dan, to meet some of these folks, whether it's Salmon P. Chase or I mentioned Abraham Lincoln, you know, William Herndon, who was a famous law partner of Lincoln, Stephen Douglas. Was he part of that legal crowd and did he have any interaction with them i'll 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 take a that's a great question robert i'll take a stab at it and charlie correct me if i'm wrong uh i don't believe he did i i think even though cincinnati and that kind of cincinnati what i'll call metro area of of uh southwestern ohio was a hotbed of legal talent i really i don't think he had a lot of interaction with them uh, again i i could certainly be wrong i one thing i wanted to throw out that I has always fascinated me about Harrison in this, in this point of his life is he makes a very 2021 decision. He and his wife, they, they tried to decide, you know, where, where are we going to settle down? Where are we going to locate as a newly married couple, start a family and all the rest, start my career and all the rest. And so they actually considered Chicago, uh, but Chicago was just a little too far for a trans from a transportation perspective. So Indianapolis was the, the kind of the midway point on the map. And so that's why they relocated here, uh, which just, again, feels like a, a, young, a young couple's logical decision, right? You want to be away from the family, but still close enough that you can access them uh, one way uh, or another. But to answer your question, I don't think he did have a lot of interaction with some of those, what I'd call heavyweights of law at that point in time. Charlie, what's your thought? So it's, it's interesting. And we, we had an exhibit a couple of years ago here at the presidential site um, called Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison, because we kept on finding these unexpected and almost extraordinary connections or interconnections between Benjamin Harrison and other presidents and other prominent figures and other significant activities in the late 19th, early 20th century. And so ultimately, we just had to put together an exhibit that, that just delved into these and then got them all off our chest and just were able to share them and have the documentation demonstrating that we weren't um, exaggerating the, the facts at hand. But you know, to, that, to that question specifically, um, Lincoln actually campaigned for William Henry Harrison. And then it's interesting to note that Benjamin Harrison was one of the um, early proponents of the new Republican Party. So he had been a Whig and um, went over then to the Republican Party when it formed. And so Harrison was part of the welcome committee when uh, Lincoln was campaigning here in Indianapolis. And so you have, you know, to Dan's point, kind of the, the intergenerational or multi-generational side of things. Uh, for Harrison, it was very much making his own way to join that nation um, Republican party. And for Harrison, so much of that was because of its stance, its anti-slavery stance, um, which would have been, um, you know, within a few generations, very foreign to his relations in Virginia. Um, so for Harrison to have exactly. made that course, and, and, and maybe we can delve into that a little bit more further in the conversation, but it's just interesting to note those interrelationships and 
you know, later Lincoln, of course, um, would brevet Benjamin Harrison as a brigadier general for valor in battle, the Battle of Resaca and Peachtree Creek. Um, but it's just, it's fascinating to think about the way that the lives intertwine, certainly in that era, much as they do in our own. Doesn't, Charlie, doesn't, uh, doesn't his dad split with him on Lincoln? So my, my understanding is that they, they had um, significant disagreement, especially with, with Benjamin Harrison joining the Republican Party. Right. So I would imagine it would be part and parcel of that. Well, let me let me ask a question since you brought it up and you anticipated one, because I was going to ask you about his association with the Republican Party. So so, Dan, why don't you take that? But first, Charlie, tell me a little bit about, you know, you'd have to know where the Harrisons came from and their genealogy and where their roots are to understand why there was this split when Benjamin decided to become a Republican. Go ahead. Well, so the Harrison family were immigrants. They came from the UK in the early 1600s. Um, you know, Benjamin Harrison V, as a signer of the Declaration of Independence, um, there had been four Benjamin Harrisons prior to him that had served prominently in public office in Virginia. And so it was really William Henry Harrison that set out on his own from uh, that homestead in, in Virginia um, just to make his way in the greater world. And of course, landed as governor of the Indiana Territory, um, ended up settling there in the corner of Ohio along the Ohio River. Um, but for Benjamin Harrison, um, in many ways, you know, even, you know, there's some great conversation and letters related to this, looking at the American Civil War, he had relations that would have served in the Confederacy. And it's, it's interesting with all the talk during the American Civil War about loyalty to state over loyalty to country. country. And you can see how fundamentally Benjamin Harrison was loyal to country first and foremost, um, that he made that decision and he made that decision very actively and intentionally, even though within a few generations, his, his family members had been at that point um, hundreds of years in the state of Virginia. Dan, go ahead about, go ahead about, please tell us a little more about Harrison's association with the Republican Party and, and really what the Republican Party was about in the 1850s. Well, um, his, his association here, again, starts in Indianapolis. So he's only been in Indianapolis, he and his wife, for about a year or a little longer. Uh, and I think it's around 1855-56 when he gives his first speech uh, on behalf of the Republican Party. And if I'm not mistaken, it's in Acton, Indiana in Shelby County. And you can still see the little rise of land where the railroad depot would have been from which he gave that first address. So uh, the attraction to the Republican Party, and you cannot, you cannot emphasize this enough, of how disruptive this period is. And, and over the course of say 24 months, 36 months, uh, the, the party system basically self-destructs. Uh, I don't know if that sounds like anything we're all familiar with, but uh, the, the Republican party comes out of nowhere in about an 18 month time span. He's drawn to it because of its resistance to the expansion of slavery, that really is what the Republican Party is all about, the resistance to its expansion and a kind of a return to the assumption, I underline the word assumption, the assumption that the, uh, the institution of slavery will die of its own uh, and so, or on its own, 
And so that's why they want to return to a kind of a cordoning off or a containment policy, to use a Cold War term, a containment policy of slavery within the South. And so that's what the Republican Party is all about. Um, and so he's, he's very much drawn to that. And I think he, he's uh, willing to, to follow the Lincolns of the world in terms of supporting some of the more um, hard-edged policies that are, that are part of that in 1858, 59, and 1860. It's, and again, as, as we had indicated a second ago, he and his dad do not see that in the same light at all. Well, and, and to Dan's point, and certainly to yours, Robert, um, you know, I came across a, a great quote of Benjamin Harrison's where he, he underscores this and his um, profound opposition to slavery. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote this. It's, it's just a short little, little clip. He says, um, and I quote, as long as God allows the vital current to flow through my veins, I will never, never by word or thought by mind or will aid in admitting to one root of free territory, the everlasting curse of human bondage. So he, he's saying this in February of 1860. And so for, for him, it, it was, I think, a really profound decision to have an active personal stance against slavery. And, and as Dan alluded to, certainly informed his decision um, to join that, that um, new Republican Party. By the way, Robert, one thing to kind of keep in mind as we think about you know, that, those explosive months in the late 1850s and the birth of the party and you know, think about what are the images that, that you have in mind when you think of something being born. It's, it's violent, it's chaotic, it's painful. It's, uh, it's a lot of things like that. And one of the words that's frankly uh, quite powerful at this point is the word conspiracy. Uh, the Republican Party, uh, in, in many ways, a, a big driver of it is a sense of conspiracy. Uh, so that's something that uh, might get lost as we look back from our vantage point. But it absolutely was the truth of things uh, by the time you get from 1857 to 1861. When the Civil War breaks out, and let's just say Fort Sumter, that's April 12th, 1861, Benjamin Harrison's roughly 28 years old, which seems pretty young uh, for us in 2021, but at the time was a little long in the tooth. What was Harrison's initial reaction to the outbreak of hostilities and then how did he become involved in the war itself go ahead charlie well you know it's interesting and and dan i'm sure as we've had a few conversations on this subject um can can add additional thoughts and and details to it but as i understand it um when that when that news first came like many in the country um, they felt like those hostilities would come to quick conclusion, um, that it wouldn't be a long drawn out effort. So initially Harrison um, didn't feel that immediate pressure to, to join militarily. Um, but that pressure really came to bear as, the, as Lincoln made his call for 300,000 new troops. Um, I think specifically for Benjamin Harrison that, um, that, that time of decision for him came when he was uh, meeting with Go Governor Indiana Governor Oliver P. Morton, and Morton caught Harrison's ear and, and that of a friend after a meeting, and said to Harrison, "You know the quandary essentially that the state was in as it needed to help raise more troops and Lincoln's additional call," and um, Harrison listens to to Morton's um, explanation, 
And Morton says, I'm not asking you to serve. I just need help raising additional troops and knew of Benjamin Harrison's reputation as an orator. And Harrison gave it some thought. It was kind of a moment of silence there. And Harrison finally said, if I'm needed, I will go. And Morton clarified, he said, no, 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 I'm not asking that you serve. I know you've got um, a young family, wife and kids at home. Um, you're Supreme Court reporter, so you've got a public office. Um, you've got a growing legal career. I'm not asking you to serve. I just need help raising troops. And Harrison made clear that if he himself were going to ask others to serve, that he himself would serve. Um, so I think it speaks certainly to Harrison's philosophy on such things and, and also would become a campaign issue in 1888 um, politically as people compared and contrasted uh, Grover Cleveland who paid for a substitute, which is a legal thing to do at the time, versus Benjamin Harrison who felt it was important for he himself to serve. After 16 months. Yes. Now let me ask another question with regard to 19th century politics and imagery. His grandfather famously uh, won the Battle of Tippecanoe, which was in 1811, hence the nickname Tippecanoe. Interesting enough, I guess we should say that William Henry Harrison's vice president, John Tyler, uh, was elected to the Confederate House of Representatives, but I think he died before he actually could attend any of the sessions. But he sit, but William Henry Harrison dies. John Tyler of Virginia becomes president. When the states secede, John Tyler, former president, is elected to the Confederate House of Representatives, but doesn't attend any sessions because of his death. An interesting piece of trivia is that John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, has at this moment in 2021, two living grandchildren. Well, so so a footnote to that. So I think I think that family is is down to one living grandson. Did um, one I, die recently? Yeah, one died recently. Um, I had an opportunity to actually meet John Tyler's grandson in the White House um, several years ago. So um, yeah, just really interesting historical moment to think about how time can stretch. Um, you know, to, to those limits to have a living grandchild of an early or 19th century president. Um, well, yeah, think that, about that, that is a fascinating uh, tidbit. I did not know that one of them had died. So thank you for that correction. That's still one of my favorite uh, pieces of trivia, uh, along with the fact that the United States uh, defeated the Soviet Union at Lake Placid on Washington's birthday, February 22nd. Uh, these sorts of fun things and coincidences happen in history. And obviously we should mention Thomas Jefferson and John Adams dying on the same day, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the declaration of independence. And we can go on and on, but the battle of Tippecanoe clearly launched William Henry Harrison into the presidency, much like the battle of new Orleans launched Andrew Jackson into the presidency. We uh, Benjamin Harrison obviously is aware of this. So as he's contemplating whether to serve in the American Civil War, he's already politically active. Is there any sense that he's trying to do the math here and say, you know, if I want to have a future in big time elected office, governor, senator, president, I really need to be a part of this war. Dan? Zero. There's no calculation whatsoever. It is not a factor at all. And why is it not a factor? Because, because what we need to understand is that 
the uh, the the time when Harrison decides to raise his hand in the governor's office and say, take me. And then, you know, as Charlie indicated, had to push past some resistance to say, take me to the battlefield. I want to go to the battlefield. Right. The time that he did that would not be the equivalent of 9-11 in 2001. It would be the equivalent of the Battle of Fallujah, uh, where, in essence, the cause looks dark. The cause looks far from successful. The cause looks like it's going to be a long, hard, bloody slog from where they are to any point of victory in the future. And in fact, when, when he's raising his hand in Oliver Morton's office on, uh, I believe it's July 9th, uh, a Wednesday in 1862, when he's raising his hand, the big question is, will the Ohio River be the southern boundary of the United States? So I, I really don't think, and, and I'll certainly you know be the first one to say I'm wrong if there's some letter that's turned up, but I, I don't think that his grandfather's military prowess as it relates to his presidency 30 years after that fact, 1811 to 1841, uh, has any calculation at all in terms of his decision to enlist. And in fact, he feels compelled. Interestingly enough, he feels compelled on the day he comes home in 1865, and he's there with his unit, the 70th Indiana, and they're on the uh, Washington Street side of the Indiana State House lawn, and he's giving a speech. And in that speech, you know, he could say anything, but he chooses to go back 35 months to when he raised his hand. And he, he chooses to explain why it took him 16 months to make that call from Fort Sumter to the middle of July in 1862. So that tells you it was weighing on his mind, even in that circumstance of celebration and relief and gratitude and everything else in the summer of 65. Charlie? Well, and, that, please. yeah, and to my, my impression is the same as Dan's from from what I've read and what I've seen um, of Benjamin Harrison is that um, ultimately he he volunteered out of a deep sense of obligation um, that he was not seeking to serve as as a way to burnish his own reputation or as a political stepping stone. You, you certainly saw a lot of that opportunism taking place, um, especially in the North uh, during the Civil War, um, explains some of the general <laughs> choices for generals. Um, and, and with Harrison, you know, even, even as he sought to to set out to raise a regiment so he had committed to oliver p morton that he would raise a regiment so a thousand men um he insisted upon starting off as second lieutenant um and set himself the task of learning how to lead and he was dan dan may characterize this differently but initially found himself deeply unpopular with his troops um, who were volunteers themselves because of his insistence upon discipline. And he just drove them day after day to learn discipline and to learn military tactics. And long after they went to bed at night, um, he would continue to study and educate himself. He even hired a drill master to be able to help um, them be as, um, as well-trained as possible before they ever saw battle. So his, his intention really going into it was to pursue it as he pursued anything um, in his life, which was with this deep-seated sense of obligation. 
Um, you can certainly see that with his commitment to the law um, and his commitment to justice through law. Um, you can certainly see that in his um, deeply held political beliefs. Um, so, um, you know, he was a strong advocate for African-American voting rights, which was a very outspoken position to have in that time period, especially as a politician from Indiana. Um, and you can see that I think certainly in, in his choices as a president. Um, he was not seeking to be popular. He was not trying to um, top out any of the presidential popularity lists, um, whether it was in his Civil War service, service or in his presidency. He was trying to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. I, I agree with that. I will come at it from a little different angle, Robert, and that is to say that you know, when he raises his hand in July of 62 and he pushes to be the one to be a, a company grade officer and actually serve in the field, when he when he insists that those things happen, it's really the equivalent of him jumping off the top of a building because he has no military experience. He has no military preparation. He's got a military grandfather and that's it. I mean, the guy the guy uses a gun to shoot rabbits and that's really about all he does with a gun. And so he's going to take on responsibility for, you know, a, what will ultimately be a thousand man unit in the 70th Indiana. And he's very aware, he's painfully aware of what that's going to entail in, in, in ordering people to be punished and in ordering people to, to put themselves in, in potential risk of death and all the rest. So he's very aware of that. And one of the things that I think is fascinating from a leadership perspective for Harrison is that, and Charlie said this, but again, I'll say it from a slightly different direction. Uh, when he's faced with the unknown, he does what I suspect a lot of us do, which is you rely on your strengths. And his strength is study, his strength is knowledge, his strength is learning. And those three things are the triad. They become the triad of how he tries to become a military officer with zero military experience. And so um, they form... They form the frame for his 35-month ordeal uh, in in the fighting his fighting aspect of the Civil War. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our subject today is the lifetimes and presidency of Benjamin Harrison. Our guests are Charlie Hyde, who is president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, and Dr. Dan Miller, who is founder and president of Historical Solutions LLC. Uh, Dan, what's your PhD in, your dissertation? My dissertation is on guerrilla warfare, irregular warfare in Connecticut from 1754 to 1783. That spans the French and Indian and American Revolutionary Wars. Does that include Ethan Allen and, and his, his Green he's Mountain in it, Boys? But he, he's in it. He's not from Connecticut specifically, right. but Allen is part of the Revolutionary War experience for that. If you're going to look for an individual who would run as a thread would run through it all, it would be Israel Putnam. Yeah, that's exactly right. I remember that name. And if, if you want to read about something that's absolutely tests the limits of human endurance, uh, 
not you, Dan, because I know you know this, but the but the listeners read about the invasion of Canada in the early years of the American Revolution, how how those guys got there and lived and then came back in those conditions is absolutely frightful. I completely agree with you, Robert. I absolutely endorse your recommendation. And I would just point out for your listeners who may not remember this, uh, a key part of why they can say they, they, they succeeded in doing it, not necessarily in winning, but in doing it is, of course, leadership. And that guy would be Benedict Arnold. Exactly right. It's well, actually, you talk about your six degrees of Benjamin Harrison. Benedict Arnold burned down Benjamin Harrison V's house. Um, so there's the, there's that connection. <laughs> should have been the other should have been the other way around. Charlie, take just a minute, please, and and tell the listeners about the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, how they can be members, what they'll see if they visit there. It's on uh, North Delaware. It's a beautiful home. The grounds are terrific. And if you want to take an extra second to talk about how amazing Bethany is, then I'll give you that time. Oh, <laughs> well, so, uh, Robert, you're, you're referencing uh, Bethany Gosworth, who's our VP of development. Um, and Bethany, along with um, just the really tremendous team we have here at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, um, um, you know, obviously, we're, we're uh, stewards of the nationally significant collection. Um, it's a 10,000 square foot house that was built in 1874 by Benjamin and Caroline Harrison. Um, they moved in in 1875. Um, Benjamin Harrison lived here until his death in 1901. Um, but the space currently serves as a museum and we represent Benjamin Harrison and that presidential legacy. So we sit on two and a half acres right here in the heart of downtown and the old North side neighborhood. And, um, in non-COVID years, you mentioned earlier um, the, the way that our team has been able to su significantly increase attendance. Obviously, that, that um, uh, does not include 2020 with the, the many restrictions um, on um, in-person visitation. But what we've been able to do is we've been able to really make sure that it's clear that the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site is a crossroads for the community, much like Indianapolis is a crossroads for the country. Um, and we actively seek out uh, partnerships and opportunities to share this presidential legacy um, with the community, whether it's through our school programs, serving more than 17,000 school children each year, helping educate them more about their country's history and um, helping them get a better understanding of what civil civic discourse looks like. Um, as modeled through Benjamin Harrison and certainly through um, others in the, the story of the American presidency. Um, we also then are able to utilize our grounds for um, uh, uh, just a really phenomenal array of events throughout the year. Um, of course, you can always find out more at presidentbenjaminharrison.org, but just a representation of some of those events. We have our presidential egg roll each year on the lawn of the museum, and that's a free community event. We have our Independence Day social celebrating the 4th of July um, here on grounds. We have our annual speaker series where we bring in national thought leaders um, to be able to share their, um, their observations on um, our American system of self-government. Um, we have other programs like our Future Presidents of America Youth Leadership Camp, which specifically reaches out to young adults between the ages of 12 and 16 and gives them an opportunity over the course of a week um, during the summer months to be able to learn about um, 
executive leadership through the story of the American presidency. Um, so just a, a wide array of programs and opportunities throughout the year. We're talking about uh, President Benjamin Harrison. We've reached his service in the American Civil War. He started out kind of in the background a little bit, not necessarily thrown into combat. But when he does, he and his brigade, I think he commanded, not a brigade, gets thrown into combat. He gets thrown into some of the worst combat of the American Civil War, and that is beginning in the spring of 1864 when Sherman starts his march on Atlanta. Dan, did first, did Benjamin Harrison get injured or come close? But speak to, please, how that particular war experience shaped him and affected him. Well, it's, uh, it's arguably the defining uh, roughly seven months, eight months or so of his life. Um, I think in, when you look back, you can see that his, that his military experience in the war from the summer of 62 to the summer of 65 breaks down into three periods. The first period was very difficult psychologically for him because he and his unit are um, um, obligated to deal in a kind of an anti-guerrilla or counter-guerrilla fashion in Kentucky and Tennessee, and, and that's not the war he raised his hand to, uh, to serve in. And so it takes a great toll on him, I think, mentally. And he's very despondent and discouraged at the end of that first period of, of his war experience. Sherman turns it all around for him. And it's a great lesson for people to take in 2021 going forward. Uh, connecting to a particular person turned it all around for him. And as you said, it's in the um, very late winter, early spring of 1864, when he joins uh, Sherman's roughly 100,000 man expedition or military force that drives toward, toward Atlanta. It's not the march to the sea at that point, just to make sure that everybody's clear on that. But uh, he, he sees Sherman as being responsible for the war that he joined, the war that Harrison joined, which is a war of of combat, a war of, of definable victories. Sadly, it's a war of horrific experiences at the same time. Uh, it's a war of advancement uh, at great cost uh, in some cases. And in, in many, many instances, he is in, in danger of severe injury. He, he escapes those, those situations. He avoids those situations in terms of the, as a result, but he absolutely is at risk of having it happen. The third phase of his, of his uh, military experience is kind of from, um, I would say, September of 64 through the, the July, June, July of 65. And and in some ways, so he's sent back home. Um, his low point, by the way, is, is in August of 64 on the outskirts of Atlanta. And he's, he's just about out of it. He's just about out of steam emotionally. And interestingly enough, Robert, it almost perfectly parallels Abraham Lincoln's experience in the same week of the same month of the same year. So when, when Lincoln has his cabinet sign a letter, 
that says basically we've lost the presidency, we will not be reelected, but we'll continue to fight until they escort us out of the White House. Uh, that's the same time when when uh, when Harrison reaches his kind of low point as well. Um, we should note that the, the cabinet members were not allowed to read that letter. They just that's correct. And that's that's a whole level of trust. We can't even begin to understand. Right. Um, so uh, so he's sent back to Indianapolis. And in, in an essence, though, he participates in the Battle of Nashville in the middle of December of, of late 64. In essence, he's not he's out of the fighting from that point forward. And he kind of spends the rest of his time. Uh, to some extent, trying to catch back up with Sherman. And it's a quite dramatic period. And you can tell in his letters and so forth in that period, that, that final third of his experience, you can tell that he really needs psychologically to reconnect with Sherman and with Sherman's efforts. And it's only in the spring of 65 that he finally reaches Sherman in North Carolina at about the same time that they find out that Lincoln's been murdered. Uh, so... But but the that central that second phase where he's involved with Sherman that is the defining phase of his military experience. There's no question about it. And they're both born in Ohio, and they're both have ties to politics one way or the other. I think Sherman's. I haven't read a biography of Sherman in quite a few years, but his father-in-law was Thomas Ewing, who was a member of the cabinet. I forget whose cabinet, but he was a cabinet member. So, and his brother was John. Sherman, who right. is famous for the Sherman Antitrust Act. But let me ask a quick question. So I could see them bonding in certain ways. And, and obviously, there's a mythical nature of, of Sherman taking Atlanta. I think it falls in September of 64. That helps reassure Lincoln's uh, election over Mac George McClellan in 64. And then you have the March to the Sea. You mentioned that Harrison did not participate in that, but was present at the Battle of Nashville, where Union General George Thomas utterly destroys John Bell Hood and his army of Tennessee. It's really the big, the last big fight in the West during the Civil War. But you mentioned his reliance, his need to see Sherman. Sherman didn't die till 1891, I think. Harrison is elected president in 1888, becomes president in 1889. Is there any evidence or correspondence between the two of them where, where Sherman congratulates his former colonel, former general? I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to defer to Charlie on that. Charlie, what do you got? I'm not aware of any specific correspondence, although certainly it may exist. But I, I do think it's interesting. We have in our collection here at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, a portrait of Sherman, which is signed by Sherman for Benjamin Harrison. And we have pictures of it hanging in the White House um, during Harrison's administration. So clearly, Benjamin Harrison retained that um, admiration for Sherman um, throughout his life. And, and you know, it would have been um, his brother, of course, with um, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was um, signed by Benjamin Harrison during his administration and is something that he was highly supportive of. And you know, certainly you know, to, to, to the conversation we're having right now around leadership, um, I, I think is very relevant to, to conversations that we're having today. Uh, one quick thing, Robert, just, to, mm -hmm. just so you know, uh, in, the, in the fall of 1865, uh, Sherman comes to Indianapolis and 
so now remember now do your math here you're talking about roughly four years or four months after the end of the of the civil war sherman comes to indianapolis and at that point in harrison's life harrison receives one of his greatest uh uh honors which is that he was designated as the official kind of host of uh, of sherman uh, as he came back as he came to the city to spend a few days so it was harrison chosen to be the one who who made sure he, he uh, enjoyed himself in Indianapolis and saw the sights and things of that sort. Is there any evidence, correspondence, statements, letters, where Benjamin Harrison took note of the assassination of Lincoln, Charlie? I would have to, to delve into some of our archives to, to see what we might have related to that. Um, there may also be something in the National Archives that would, would indicate you know, some communication around it. Um, I can tell you within our collection currently, so this, this came to us later, uh, but we actually have a portrait of Lincoln uh, that hung in state with Lincoln's body when that funeral train was returning to Springfield. Um, so that, that came to the museum later, but um, you, you, can, you can tell certainly as you, as you read more deeply into Benjamin Harrison's writing, how much Lincoln was an influence on Harrison and on Harrison's thought and certainly his perception of the obligations and duties of an American president. Hey, Robert, I wanted to mention one thing to you regarding Sherman. And, and I, I think it's Victor Davis Hanson who wrote a book called uh, Civil Wars. There are, there are several, there are actually several civil wars. There's not, there's not only the one total uh, event that we think of 1861, 1865. There's several sub events. And Harrison is a wonderful illustration of that because he's very, once he connects with Sherman during that second period I talked about of his military service, those eight months, once he connects with Sherman, he's very sensitive to what he calls, quote, the West, close quote, and to the the assumptions that in, in large part, the Eastern media had built up about what the West and the Western soldiers and the Western army was like. And so when you get to the summer of 1865, and I think it's in May, when they have a big, uh, fascinating event in Washington, DC, where they have basically the two halves of the army each take a day and march down Pennsylvania Avenue to be celebrated and cheered and, and thanked. Uh, Harrison is really touchy about how he's very concerned of how people in Washington, D.C. are going to expect them to behave. He's, he says that, that they're going to expect us to be brutal. They're going to expect us to be uncivilized and to be overly violent and and raw in our conduct and appearance. And he really goes out of his way to make sure that every man under his command at that point behaves right down to the letter of the law in terms of the best possible soldier and soldierly conduct. And so he's it's fair to say, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say it's and it's, if you read about that, the pride that William Tecumseh Sherman took in his troops from the West as they, of course, Sherman was so busy being angry at everybody on the podium, starting with uh, secretary of war, Edwin Stanton, that I'm surprised he had time to be uh, proud about how his troops looked, but you're exactly right. If you read about the grand review, one of the thing that's very clear is how 
the Western soldiers had a chip on their shoulder because they were back East and they wanted to put on their best possible appearance. And they did. That's right. And you know, when, so when the unit comes back to Indianapolis, and by the way, in my research, I found that the city of Indianapolis basically put together a template for, for returning units. And they had a series of activities and a a kind of a schedule of, of, of events that each unit would, would go through for about a three-day period upon their return. And when Harrison and the 70th Indiana come back on June 13th, 1865, there's, there's high degree of tension on both sides, both the soldiers and the civilian side of Indianapolis worrying about what's going to happen when they march down Washington Street. And there's a lot of a lot of anxiety about violence will break out, that the soldiers are going to target Democratic newspaper offices and residents along Washington Street and other kind of side streets adjacent to it. And so Harrison kind of replays that whole that whole speech, that whole obsession that he had from a month before and tells tells the 70th Indiana, we are going to be the perfect soldiers marching down the middle of Washington street and, uh, and so on. Charlie, let me ask you a question. Uh, Benjamin Harrison's mustered out of the army in 1865. He's elected president in 1888 besides building a house. What did he do for those? Can you condense 23 years into about two or three minutes for us so that we can get to his presidency? Well, I think it was a time of immense uh, professional growth for Benjamin Harrison. Um, Dan, Dan has been pretty uh, thoughtful about this and, and how Benjamin Harrison recovered mentally from the, the vigors and strains of actual combat. Um, you know, there, there are great stories about Benjamin Harrison and how he cared for his troops and going to the length of even serving as battlefield surgeon after they got separated from the medical corps after one of the battles. So, it wasn't just that he was, you know, way behind the lines and just kind of going through the motions of being a soldier. I mean, he, he clearly had enormous um, responsibilities under his command. So returning to Indianapolis to be able to reunite with his wife and his two young children um, had to have been a, an enormous boon to him, although he continued to have to struggle with, you know, coming out the other side of the war. But he was able to start rebuilding that legal career. So he was able to resume the office of Supreme Court reporter. He started um, further bolstering and burnishing that professional reputation um, within in Indianapolis, um, gained statewide attention, certainly both through his um, efforts as a lawyer and through his oratory, and really started during that era coming to regional and then national attention um, through in part that that law career. There are a number of very significant cases. Ex parte uh, Milligan comes to mind. Uh, the Nancy Clem case comes to mind um, that really brought national attention to Harrison. Um, Dan, what, what might you want to add to that? Well, one thing I would certainly say, oh, and by the way, that that tension I referenced um, when they return in, in mid-June of 65, one of the, the court cases that's working its way through the judicial branch is ex parte Milligan. And there's a lot of concern about what's going to be the reaction to that on the, on the part of the soldiers. Well, they take out their frustration on the people of Indianapolis. Uh, 
Dan, ex- um, explain the explain the case, ex parte Milligan. Well, uh, d- d- real quick, it's it's the uh, it's the de- the decision to to try to jail a, a handful of Democratic candidates, um, most of whom were in Indiana, because on on grounds of treason and sedition, they were promoting an anti-war agenda that pro-war, pro-Republican, pro-Lincoln forces interpreted as, as a threat to national security. And so uh, the, the Supreme Court ends up ruling that you cannot, you cannot derail cases into the military justice system so long as there's the possibility that a civilian court can exist and stand alone and rule it on its own behalf. And so the military wanted to send it into the military justice system in order to prosecute those guys. The Supreme Court said, no way, baby, you're going to send them through the regular court system. And they were they were set free. This is uh, this is part of part and parcel of, of one of Lincoln's most most famous quotes. And there's only about a million of those. Right. But one of his most famous quotes is um do I have to execute, and I'm paraphrasing, do I have to execute the young boy who deserts while, who deserts from his post while the snake who convinced him to do so goes free? And so it's the snakes that they were trying to, to use their words, the snakes that they were trying to imprison, and they were prevented from doing so by the ex parte Milligan ruling. Uh, wily agitator. That's exactly the, right. Is the phrase that Lincoln used. Uh, the, the other thing too, uh, Robert, I'll go a little farther out on the limb. And I'm, I kind of really think that Harrison comes back with PTSD. Um, I don't, his wife talks about him being very short tempered and where, where he wasn't before. Uh, some of the people that work with him talk about him being lashing out at them where he had never done that prior to uh, his wartime experience. And Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's like two years after the war is over where Harrison, and again, I really think he, he just decides this on his own. Harrison takes a two-week fishing trip that seemed to kind of release a lot of, a lot of his um, uh, pent-up frustrations and so on. Uh, and it's kind of after that trip that he seems to calm down more than he had uh, prior to that point. Well, it seems like finding that equilibrium. Exactly. Exactly. By the way, one, one guy I would compare him to, um, and I think it'd be an interesting study to look at, is uh, he's very similar and has a very similar military experience to uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. How so? Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain famously defended the round tops on the second day at the Battle of Gettysburg, was a professor of rhetoric, if I recall correctly, at Bowdoin College, and received That's correct. received well the medal, received <laughs> received the Medal of Honor uh, for his work there, and was very prominent in Civil War reunions uh, after the conflict had ended. What do you think the comparison is? Well, there's a, there's a few. Uh, number one, they joined the war at almost the same time, the summer of '62. They're both studious men. They're both people that I would say whose leadership is, is revolves around knowledge and knowledge possession. Uh, they're both uh, men who are comfortable talking in front of other people based on their knowledge. Uh, they both decide not to be the primary commander in their regiment and both choose to become lieutenant colonels so that they can learn the trade, if you will, uh, before they get any further responsibility. Uh, 
they they both are involved in multiple hideously violent battles in their respective theaters of the war, and they both become successful politicians after the war is over. Uh, so I, you, you can you can beat a dead horse, I realize, but I, they do have a lot of really interesting parallels. Charlie, what made Benjamin Harrison run for president in 1888, and how slash why did he win? You know, it's interesting looking at that backstory. So if you, if you asked Harrison, he would say that the last political office that he sought himself was the Supreme Court reporter position um, and whatever that would have been, I guess, 1860 um, or right about that time. Um, so he he stepped up and Dan, I'm not sure I'm going to get this date exactly right. I, I believe it probably would have been the election of 1876. Six Correct. would it have been for Indiana? Well, for um, Indiana governor, yeah, Harrison right. stepped into the breach um, after the official candidate for office um, got caught in an ethics trap. Um, so Harrison basically took one for the team and stepped into that um, candidacy and lost by a very narrow margin. I think less than five thousand votes but gained so much additional respect for the way that he handled himself and spoke and made his case for the office that by 1880, he'd been elected as Senator from Indiana, which in turn gave him a platform to engage nationally politically. Um, it allowed him to um, advocate for some of the ideas that he uh, felt very strongly about, um, you know, including um, he was, he had, tried to pass legislation twice that would have protected the Grand Canyon and was unsuccessful with both efforts. So this is just by way of example. And so when he assumed the presidency, he was able to call for and, and sign the Forest Reserve Act, which included a little known provision, but one that he actively sought to have included that gave the president the ability to protect natural resources nationally. So that's essentially, um, if you look up on the, um, U.S. Forest Service website, they will credit that act in Benjamin Harrison for the creation of the National Forest Service. So it, it allowed Benjamin Harrison, you know, 22 other presidents before him, but it was really Benjamin Harrison that really drove that first impulse to protect natural resources nationally. Uh, by the end of his administration, he had been able to set aside tens of millions of acres of federal land for protections, including redwoods and sequoias. So you know, that, that coming, coming to, um, I think, the presidency in 1888 for him, um, while it was unexpected, um, I, I think that with the, the nomination process in Chicago that year, um, everyone saw him as, as a dark horse candidate, um, including himself. And so I think it was unexpected that he actually received the nomination. And, and there's, a, there's a bigger story to that. Um, that I'm happy to share as well. And, and Dan and I have actually had a few conversations about this recently, especially with the opening of our new exhibit, The Night Indianapolis Roared, that looks specifically at that day and, and what happened. Dan, do you want to talk about that real quick? The, you mean the night that Indianapolis roared in 1888? Yes, sir. Um, sure. I, I was... Uh... I mean, just to be full disclosure, I was engaged, Charlie engaged me to do some research and writing about that night, which I'm, I'm happy to say that I had the, the honor of doing. And so it's a, it's, it's a tremendous, a tremendous story because it's, it's a recognition 
uh, not only of Harrison um, kind of doing the impossible and coming from behind and coming out of nowhere to become the, the uh, Republican nominee on June 25th, I think it is, 1888. But more importantly, it's, or as importantly, I should say, it's an example of a community having this kind of organic realization on one night that we have made it. We have become something we, that we haven't been before. It's, this event has captured and crystallized uh, you know, 25 years worth of development, of growth, of advancement, and progress. And so what's so remarkable about the night, and by the way, so the event stretches from about one o'clock in the afternoon to about 10 o'clock in the evening, is there is this outpouring of euphoria across the city of Indianapolis, across central Indiana, that spans everything, man. I mean, that celebrates Harrison's accomplishment, but also the accomplishment of Indianapolis and central Indiana and all of the state that we've been recognized as a, as a place of major significance with this event. So it doesn't make any difference. Republicans, Democrats, Blacks, Whites, rich, poor, inner city, outer limits, you name it, uh, business owners and business workers, men and women and kids, everybody comes out over the course of that rel relative, let's say, 10-hour period to just have a party. And uh, there's a lot that goes into the story. It's got a lot of waves back and forth, but it's, it's just an absolute uh, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And the, the thing I would liken it to, Robert, would be when the Colts won the Super Bowl. It's, you know, it didn't make any difference whether you cared about the game or cared about X, Y, or Z. You were just, it was happy. It meant a lot to the city and to the state and all that. And so that would be the closest we could come to that kind of spontaneous outburst of pure enthusiasm. And Harrison, by the way, really taken aback. There's several instances during the course of that 10 hours where he's just shocked at what he witnesses in terms of the celebration. And so when he, when he finally makes his way home in the middle of the afternoon or so, and people are pouring around that house, you know, there's like 8,000 people out there and in the street and on the lawn, and Harrison welcomes a group of veterans from the 70th Indiana who make the trek from Hendricks County west of the city on the train, and they make their way to Harrison's house to say, congratulations, job well done. And here's, here's where I would have loved to have been there, Robert, because when Harrison made eye contact with the first guy from the unit, they started to tear up. And so those 25 years vanished in 25 seconds. And it's, it goes to show you, you know, your earlier question about the imprint of the war, those tears that take 25 seconds to form, that shows you how fundamental the impact of the military experience was. Harrison won the presidency in 1888, famously winning the Electoral College, but losing the popular vote. Four years later, he has his rematch with Democrat Grover Cleveland he of the paid substitute during the American Civil War, uh, but he loses this time. Why does, Charlie, why does Benjamin Harrison lose to Grover Cleveland? I think that there, there are a whole host of reasons why Harrison could have won and you know, certainly did lose that election. It certainly didn't help his case that his wife, Caroline Harrison, was on her deathbed 
um, from tuberculosis. Uh, so that commanded much of his attention through that summer and early fall leading up to the election. And for, um, for someone who, whose political strength really rested on his ability to articulate very complex ideas in a very approachable way, um, his, his oratory had really carried him far, um, I think, within the presidency. And certainly when he took the 10,000 mile train trip across the country, seeking to unite the country um, um, around this idea, you know, just two decades after the American Civil War, that it was our shared identity as Americans that was most important rather than the um, fractured and fractiousness um, sensibilities of the American Civil War where there was this identity of state first. So for, for Harrison to, to make that trek across the country, um, he was deeply committed to the larger obligations of office and had a vision for what his pre presidency could represent, but just found the office of the presidency to be exceptionally uh, wearing and uh, wearisome. So he, he sought to undertake um, civil service reform and, and took that to heart, um, eschewing that spoils system. And I think that alone almost ground him um, into the ground just because of all the opposition that he received from within his own party. And in turn, um, the little credit that he got from his political opponents and his efforts to do so. And so the position it put him in as the um, renomination process was coming to bear was that even with his own, within his own party, there was significant opposition to his candidacy. And Harrison, even at that time, as I understand it, had been considering not running for re-election himself, just stepping aside and letting another candidate step forward, but felt so betrayed by the machinations of the political party machine that he felt he was almost honor bound to, um, to make it clear that, that he was willing to run again. He said something to the effect of that no Harrison had ever um, turned his back to battle and he didn't intend to start. Um, so as, as a matter of um, commitment to the country and probably some small measure of um, just honor, he, he felt that it was important to, to run for reelection. But with the death of Caroline, um, deciding not to campaign for reelection for himself, uh, Grover Cleveland, to his credit, also then decided that he would not campaign um, actively out of respect for the First Lady um, and compounded certainly by um, the financial situation. Um, and I think that there was a lot of conversation taking place about the billion dollar Congress um, that so the first time that the, the budget had reached a billion dollars, the additional economic strains from the Pension Act that Harrison had called for and signed that finally helped meet the obligations that the country had made to Civil War veterans. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of factors that come to bear. I don't know, Dan, um, just from your studies, what, what you've come across, but um, that, that certainly speaks to some of, some of what would have been in currency at that time. I think you're 100% right, Charlie. Uh, the, the only thing I would just add, just to underscore part of that is, I don't think there's any question that if you had to boil it down, it's his wife. I mean, that's, that's a punch right in the gut um, at the worst possible time as well. I think it's October. Uh, so it really just, it wipes him out. It wipes him out emotionally, mentally, all the rest. And he, he kind of was done at that point 
Hey, I, Charlie, I do want to throw on one more six degrees of separation anecdote, right? Into the hat here. Uh, during that 10,000 mile trip you referenced that Harrison took while he was president, one of the uh, attendees of one of the stops in Southern California was uh, George Patton Sr. Hmm. Uh, because Patton's family fought for the Confederacy, right? That's correct. After he left office, Benjamin Harrison returned to Indianapolis. He got married again and lived out his years as a dignified elder statesman. He died in 1901. Charlie, real quick, as we end up the Leaders and Legends podcast, please give us just a few final thoughts about Benjamin Harrison. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about that idea of presidential legacy and, and certainly post-presidency, I think Harrison becomes all the more interesting. And it's certainly one of the things that we seek to do is we, we feel like Benjamin Harrison has an interesting legacy to share, that it's all the more relevant to conversations that we're having today with his focus on African-American voting rights, civil rights, um, his advocacy for conservation, um, certainly with the investments that he sought to make in our veterans and in a two-ocean Navy for national defense. There's a really compelling story there that um, is underknown and merits deeper exploration. When you think about the um, almost the infinite number of books that have been written on the founders and on modern presidency, there's a rich trove of opportunity for some on a enterprising historian to delve into you know, that, that era with Harrison and really the cusp of the modern era. So I think there's, there's a lot to be shared there um, within his presidency and what he sought to advocate for. And even looking at post-presidency as he came to international fame as a lawyer and arguing the, um, the case against Great Britain, um, arguing for Venezuela, um, representing the United States at The Hague um, as you mentioned, you know, he did remarry after um, his first wife's death and had one of the few uh, presidential children, so post-presidency. So there, there's much more to that story. And I, I think he would have had a really compelling um, later years if he had not died at the age of 67 of influenza um, in 1901. Speaking, so, of, inter speaking of enterprising historians, Dan Miller, thank you very much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. <laughs> Charlie Hyde, thank you very much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's been great. I've enjoyed the discussion very much. I confess that the late 19th century, at least in American history, is not one that I've read about too much, but it clearly uh, set the stage for what came after that, and that is the, the, the McKinley-Roosevelt uh, presidencies that transformed so much of, of how the United States acted in front of the world. Well, and, and Robert... Robert, very much to that point, you know, you talk about your six degrees of Benjamin Harrison, the two future presidents that he hired into his administration were Taft and Roosevelt. So you, you look at the ways that the, these presidencies were intertwined, and it's just a fascinating story. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relation enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests have been Charlie Hyde, who is President and CEO, Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, and Dr. Dan Miller, historian, 
founder and president of Historical Solutions, LLC. Thank you very much for your time, both of you. Thank Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.